Good morning, everyone. All right. As you came into worship this morning, you might have seen certain photographs on the screen. Somebody dredged up photographs of me when I was in college. Yeah. I don't know who that was, but somebody has a lot to answer for. In fact, in one of those, I've got my arm around some girl, and I don't even know who she is. I mean, there were so many, but the point of the matter is, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'll tell you what. All right, enough about that. Hey, it was a bright, sunny day, and Walter stood in the bed of a pickup truck, and he shielded his eyes against that bright sun, and he looked out over a bunch of orange groves, and he saw some farmers working in the fields, and he kind of looked at it and stared at it and thought, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. So he approached the owners, and they signed the contracts, and this happened and that happened. And then he stood again in a pickup truck on the 15th of July in 1955 as they began work on the project of his life. And then one year and one day later, on the 16th of July in 1955, Disneyland opened. You see, as he stood in the bed of that pickup truck, Back in 1953, Walt Disney didn't just see orange groves in the vicinity of Anaheim, California. What he saw instead was a theme park, a place that came to be known as the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. And the fact of the matter is, that story has always, in an odd kind of a way, inspired me. I mean, my family and I love Disney, and we've been to Disneyland many times. It is, in fact, the happiest place on earth if you want to pay $5 for a Coca-Cola and spend about $1,000 just getting in and out of the park. But the fact of the matter is, I applaud Walt Disney for his vision. And I'm reminded, as I think back to that story, of a very old and well-known story from the book of Acts that you and I have probably heard a gazillion times in our lives. But I think that day in the Orange Grove has a lot to do with what's going on in Acts chapter 9. And so if you can get those visions of me in college out of your head and follow me to the book of Acts chapter 9, I want to share some things with you. The story is in fact so familiar, I feel a bit odd even reminding you of it. The backstory, as you well know, is this. Saul has been raised in the Jewish faith, and Saul has no patience whatsoever and will give no quarter to individuals that are blaspheming his God and leading people away from his faith. And so Saul has it in his head to start persecuting Christians. And so the story begins in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, and it goes something like this. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues up in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And I've always kind of thought that this part of the story was like that scene in Star Wars where the evil emperor's getting together with the evil count and they're all kind of plotting against the Jedi and all the good guys. Saul is, in his mind, doing the right thing. Now, I want to stop for a moment and point out something pretty important here. At this point, you're probably sitting there in your pew thinking smugly to yourself, well, I'm not like Saul at all. I'm not persecuting Christians. And chances are pretty good that's exactly how it is. But I want to point this out. 
All of us are like Saul in one very important regard. Probably by hunches, most of you think you've got it together. Most of you think you're doing the right thing when it comes to trying to please the Lord. After all, why else would you be here, right? I mean, you didn't walk in those doors today to see pictures of me when I was in college. You came here because you probably love the Lord and because you probably want to honor him and please him. And you probably, if we're being honest, if I put truth serum in your veins, you probably think you're doing pretty good. Yeah, so did Saul. We sometimes give Saul a bad rap. But we forget he was motivated, misguided though he was, wrong though he was, he was motivated because he thought he was doing the right thing in God's eyes. Well, as I said, it's a familiar story, and so the story goes on in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. So as he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashes all around him. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, of course, has no idea what's going on, so he looks up and he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, hey, I'm Jesus, the guy you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Okay, fine, fair enough. Now remember, Saul never saw this coming. In Saul's mind, he was doing what he thought was the right thing to do. Now, we know in hindsight it's the wrong thing to do. But again, put yourself in Saul's shoes. You're doing what you think is right and you're super excited because you've got these letters from the high priest to go off to Damascus and persecute a bunch of people you think need and deserve to be persecuted. Well, you know, the story continues. God talks to a guy there in the city named Ananias, and he explains to Ananias that Saul is going to be there in the city, and he asks Ananias to go and talk with Saul, because Ananias has been called by God to do that. Ananias, as you might imagine, kind of freaks out about that, okay? The prospect of talking to this guy that's been persecuting Christians is not a very pleasant one. It's like saying to someone, hey, can you go talk to Darth Vader and tell him to cool it? You know, and you remember the scene in the original Star Wars, the first Star Wars, the really good Star Wars, right before they messed it all up about 20 years later, you know? It's a scary proposition for Ananias. And so in the 15th verse of Acts chapter 9, God understands Ananias' fears, and he says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to the kings and to all the people of Israel. Stop. Here's where I'm going with this. This whole Walt Disney thing, this whole story in Acts chapter 9 thing. I, I want to be clear. Over here is Ananias. <clears throat> Ananias only sees Saul as he is today. Ananias only sees Saul as the guy persecuting Christians. All he can see when he looks at Saul is someone who is to be feared, someone who is clearly doing the wrong thing, someone who is inhumane, someone who is cruel, someone who is not just flawed, but he is really messed up. That's how Ananias sees Saul. Saul sees himself as somebody who, as I said a moment ago, like a lot of us, think that we're doing the right thing. And then there's God. You see, God, God has this vision of who Saul could become tomorrow. Or to put it differently, God doesn't see Saul as he is today. God sees Saul as he can be tomorrow. Now, that's a mind-blowing idea. 
Not even Saul saw himself as the person he could be tomorrow in God's eyes. Ananias sure didn't see it that way, but God did. Flaws and all, cruelty and all, persecution and all, misguidedness and wrongness is all. God has a vision, not of Saul today, but of the person Saul can become. You know, sometimes I talk to my students and they get frustrated with their parents. Big surprise. Because sometimes they say they think their parents have locked them in time. And what they mean by that is they'll come home for Christmas break or they'll go home for summer break and their parents will treat them the same way that they treated them when they lived at home in high school. Because their parents have them locked in time. The only child they see is the child that was the child that lived with them before they went off to college. There's actually a technical term for that that I talk about in one of my classes called rigid mental conceptions. It's like when my mom saw me as a kid and I didn't like bananas. Well, now that I'm an adult, I like bananas. So when my mom was alive, I went to her house in Phoenix and I said, hey mom, let's get some bananas. And she said, you don't like bananas. I said, no, actually, I really I like bananas. She said, no, you don't. I said, no, mom, I've, I've, I've changed, I've grown up really, I like bananas now. No, Brian, you think you like bananas, you don't like bananas. <laughs> what do you say to that? Okay, mom. I actually had to sneak to the store and get bananas and hide them so my mom would not see me eating bananas. But the point of the matter is, that's locked in time. God didn't lock Saul in time. God had a vision of who Saul could become. And when I read that today in the 21st century, I think to myself, wow, the same is true for you and the same is true for me. You see, God has a vision of who you can be tomorrow. Because God doesn't just see your past. He doesn't just see your today. God sees your tomorrow. You know, it's funny. Uh, when I used to preach back in Portland, there was a guy that was one of the elders there. And his story is kind of a neat story. He had uh, kind of led a, how shall we say, not so Christian life. And he goes off to serve his country in the Vietnam conflict. And he comes back after a tour of duty in Vietnam. He's an older student. He gets converted to Christianity, and he shows up at Columbia Christian College. Now, you can imagine a man who's older than most of the other students, who's gone across the world and fought for his country in Vietnam, and he comes back and he lands at Columbia Christian College, where he's forced to live in a dorm with a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old kids, some of whom have never been out of Oregon. His hair was about down to here, <laughs> which, by the way, in the early, you know, late 1960s, didn't go over very well at Columbia Christian College. And as fate would have it, he gets in trouble. And so he goes to the dean of students on many occasions. Finally, the dean of students says, I'm sorry, you're done. We're expelling you. They kick him out. Fast forward about 30 years. The dean of students is an elder at the church where I preached, and he sat every Sunday next to that guy who was also an elder at the church where I preached. They used to laugh at it. He would say, hey, remember when I kicked you out of college? Oh, I sure do. <laughs> but they're all doing the Lord's work. How do you account for that? You account for it by saying that somebody has a vision of who someone can become. Because the part of the story I didn't tell you is that in the final meeting before that young man was kicked out of Columbia Christian College, the dean of students said, someday I believe you will do something great in God's kingdom. 
but at this point in your life, this is what you need now. And boy, that young man didn't want to hear that. But that dean of students had a vision of who this guy could become. So you saw photographs of me when I was back in college with my flowing locks of hair, my well-dressed demeanor. It's a good thing you saw photographs of me and not some people that I could talk about. Because I'm telling you, if I had a dollar for every guy that I was in school with that is now a preacher in our fellowship, I'd be a rich man. Because a lot of those guys, I know what they did in college, okay? I knew the rules they broke the school never knew about. I knew what they did on a Saturday night. And every once in a while, I'll bump into one of them and I'll say, how in the world did you become a preacher? And they'll look at me and go, well, yeah, we knew you were going to be a preacher. But the fact of the matter is, somewhere along the line, somebody had a vision, not of who they were then, but of who they could be. So when you look at your life, when you look at your kid's life, when you look at anybody's life here in this church family, do you just see them as they are today? Or worse, do you just see them as they were in the past? Or do you see them as they could be? Do you see them with the eyes that God sees them? Because I guarantee you that God looks at them and says, man, I see you as the person you can be. And the beautiful thing is, you don't even know it. Saul didn't even know it. Nowhere on his radar. Another friend of mine back in Portland, who's probably one of the most negative people I've ever met in my life. Talk about Eeyore in the Hundred Acre Wood. That's what this guy was. So negative about everything. Negative about the weather. Negative about his sports team. Negative about the rain in Portland. Negative about decisions the elders at the church made. Negative about the Bible class teacher. Negative about you name it. You know, the mismatched number of hot dogs in a pack versus the number of hot dog buns in a bag. Negative about everything. And at one point, I remember... I was on a long drive with this guy, and we talked about his negativity, and he said, I'm just a negative person. It's just who I am. No. No. God says, I don't accept that. You're not just who you are. You're not just a husband that could be better. You're not just a Christian that could be more committed to God. No, you're, you're not just someone who fill in the blank. God says that may be who you are today, but that is not who you have to be. And so the story of Saul I really like, not just because it's this great turnaround story. Boy, talk about amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. That is Saul's story. But what I like about it is that God's part is amazingly overlooked because God has a vision of who Saul can become. And man, if that's not a message we need to hear today, I don't know what is. And sometimes I think we relegate this story to people that don't know God. We think of our neighbors and go, yeah, that person needs to hear, you know. Or we think, yeah, that student needs to have a road to Damascus experience. But Saul is a lot like us because Saul thought he had it together. And so I guess I really want you to understand that God does have a vision of who you can become. But you have to do your part. Now think about it. The story in Acts 9 works because Saul realized he has to do his part. So the story continues down in verse 18 of Acts chapter 9. So Saul got up 
and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So he spent several days there with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, Paul had to decide, I've just had an amazing spiritual experience here. What am I going to do with it? Notice that God doesn't force Saul to do this. This is not like Jonah. Hey, Jonah, I call you. Oh, you're going to run away? Have fun inside the belly of a fish for a couple of days. There's no forcing here. Saul does his part. And so we have to do our part. I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes we sit back and think, well, I'm just going to wait for God to change me. I mean, I've prayed about it. I believe God's promises about it. I'll just kind of wait here. I'll wait. Yeah, you know what? Disneyland would never have been built if Walter had waited for someone to build it. Saul would never have preached to the Gentiles and to the kings that Jesus is the Son of God if he hadn't done his part. Now, part of that was climbing into the baptistry, but you know the rest of the story. And so, yes, God has a vision of who you can become. God has a vision that you can become a better spouse than maybe you've been. God has a vision that maybe you can have more patience than you've had in the past. That you can be better at forgiving people. That you don't have to be that negative person. That you don't have to be the kind of person that always tends to be dismissive of people that don't quite live up to your standards. That instead, you can see them the way God sees them. And most importantly, you can see yourself as God sees you. Or to put it differently, maybe you can begin to see that when you do your part, you can see yourself tomorrow as God sees what you can be tomorrow. Here's how Keith Drury put it in his book, Soul Shaper, Becoming the Person God Wants You to Be. If God is the shaper of your soul, what is left for you to do? Should you relax in your sin and wait for God to change you in his good time? No, you have as part to play in God's work, even though he is the one who does it. I mean, you can hinder God's work with denial and resistance, but you can help God with surrender and obedience. Surrender and obedience. Surrender. I'll go to the city after having seen the bright light. Obedience. I'll get baptized. I'll take some food, spend some time with the disciples, and then get to work preaching. That's Saul's story. And really, isn't that our story? And so I guess I have a question. What are you doing today? What are you doing now? What are you doing this week to be the person that God knows you can be? Are you like Saul, kind of resting on your laurels? Hey, I've got this figured out. I mean, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've heard a gazillion sermons. I've sung Amazing Grace every which way, okay? Or are you really working on being the person God wants you to be? Do you just want to be more forgiving, or are you working on being more forgiving? Do you want to be more patient, or are you working on being more patient? Are you really trying to be kind to people that are hard to be kind to because they're like porcupines? They're prickly outside but kind of soft on the inside? Are you really doing something to be the person God knows you can be? It it takes hard work. Paul knew that because he says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he has to work at it daily. 
you're going to struggle with it. Again, Paul knew that because he talks about that in Romans chapter 7. The good that he doesn't want to do, I mean, the evil he doesn't want to do, he does, and the good he wants to do, he doesn't. As the great philosopher Bruce Springsteen sang about 25 years ago, one step up, two steps back. One step up, two steps back. That's okay. Because Saul was trying to be the person God knew he could be. And so if you want to be the person God knows you can be, but you find it hard, one step up, two step back, you're in good company. Because if Saul had the experience on the road to Damascus and he struggled with it, I think we're going to struggle with it as well. But you know what? From the moment he saw Jesus on that road, through all the things that Saul experienced, the beatings, the shipwrecking, the being left for dead, the preaching, the wonderful sermon in Athens, all of it, Paul understood, despite everything, one step up, two steps back, it's worth it. Here's what he wrote in his journal in Philippians chapter 3. But one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and straining to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is Saul reflecting on his life years after that incident in Damascus. This is Saul saying, God had a vision of who I could become. And so I forget about who I was that day and what I did prior to that day. What I do is I press on. I strive. And so, my friends, that's what it takes because it's important. I mean, becoming the person that you know, that God knows you can be, it's such a blessing to other people. That guy back in Portland who's so negative, his family would love for him to be less negative. In fact, full disclosure, not one of his kids is faithful to the Lord. And I think one reason for that is because they heard a lot of his negativity growing up. And so you never know who might be, I call it, reverse blessed. <laughs> but you also never know who might be blessed by you being the forgiving person God knows you can become, by you becoming the patient person God knows you can become, by, God, you, by you becoming the kind of person who can control your temper in the way that God knows you can become. Look, people are counting on you, your grandkids, your spouses, the people that sit in the pews around you, me, I'm counting on you. And so is God, because God knows when you become the person he knows you can be, you'll bless other people. Because we live in community. We just do. And if that's not good enough, there are heavenly rewards. There are heavenly rewards. Paul didn't just press on and strive because he wants to be the better person. Paul understood the rewards that come with being the person God knows you can become. Here's what Paul wrote toward the end of his life. He's in prison. He's reflecting back on his life. And he asks a question that many people that get to that point ask. Was it worth it? Did I do enough? Here's what Paul says. I'm already being poured out like a 
drink offering, which, by the way, is kind of metaphoric language to refer to, I'm about to die. And the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Or to put it differently, the crown of righteousness is awarded not just to Saul, it's rewarded to all of those who become the person God knows they can become. So let's get to work. Let's get to work. So take this as a word of encouragement. However you see yourself this morning, know for certain that God sees you as the person you can become. And although Walter saw a theme park in the midst of the orange groves of Southern California, God sees something much better than a theme park. God sees your life as he knows it can be. And so this morning, maybe today is the day to come to the realization, I can do better. I can be the person that God knows I can be. And this church family stands ready to help you attain that in whatever way we can. And so behind me is a baptistry that is filled and ready. So maybe today is the day when you commit your life to the Lord and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe today's the day when we pray about your life, about whatever swirls around it. Maybe today's the day when you say, you know what, I'm not the person I know that God could be, so help me. So we pray for you. And so as is our custom, in a moment, Kyle will lead us in a song that talks about the shield that God puts around us. And as we sing that song, one of our shepherds will be here in the front to perhaps pray with you, to assist you. Another shepherd will be in the back out of the lobby if that's a little more private, a little more comfortable for you. But it's not about orange groves. It's not about theme parks. It's about us. <laughs> it's about us and the people that God knows we can be. And so as a church family that loves one another and wants to please God and wants to live up to what God knows we can be, let's stand together and sing.